You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's podcast. I am so honored and delighted to have Anat Peled Katz joining us today. And she is a native of Israel and came to Boston in 1999. And she's been teaching yoga in the Boston area since 2011. And she leads a variety of offerings, workshops, assistant trainings, and teacher trainings. She's currently teaching online at four different studios, On the Mat, Boston Yoga Union, JP Center Yoga, and Artemis Yoga. And one of the things I love dearly about Anat is that she identifies as an eternal dedicated student. And she is inspired and nourished by different styles and methodologies of yoga and enjoys combining them in her classes. And she does so quite artfully and gracefully. So Anat, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Thank you so much. That was such a nice introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I'd love to start off by hearing you just share a little bit about your personal journey to yoga. What drew you to yoga and the impact that yoga has had in your life? I know that's a big question, but I'd love to start there. It's a huge question. (laughs) Oh, well, I started uh, going to yoga after, well, I actually started doing yoga when I was pregnant with my Mm -hmm. first, Mm -hmm. she's now 14. Mm -hmm. And I got this DVD of Shiva Ray doing Mm -hmm prenatal yoga and I did it I did it for like six months um, whenever I got a chance and it was really helpful Mm. and then I put that aside and my baby was born and I and I got into into a first studio studio class um, when I wanted to get rid of the baby fat so Mm. so my friend dragged me to a power yoga class Mm. and uh it was terrible. <laughs> I, was, I was sweating my eyeballs out. I didn't know where to put my feet and hands. My clothes were getting in the way. It was like, I remember being so disoriented and I came out and I was like, oh my God, that was awesome. <laughs> it went from awful to awesome. Yeah, it was, it was really hard. It was really, really hard because it was a heated, you know, it was a Baptiste class. Mm-hmm. And uh, she dragged me back a couple of times and then she got tired of it and I just kept going. Uh, so that was, that was kind of, uh, the first thing that drew me in was just that, that feeling of being in my body and, and, and doing a physical activity. Mm -hmm. I've never been an athlete. I've never done any sports in school or anywhere. I mean, I danced a little when I was a kid, but nothing like that. So all of a sudden I started to have muscles and i i was able to do things that i never imagined that i could do mm-hmm. and it was a wonderful feeling of strength mm. and i loved 
you know, when you're doing heated power yoga, it kind of gives you that endorphin rush mm -hmm. that I've never experienced. I don't think I have. So that's a little bit addictive. So that was my gateway drug. Mm -hmm. I started doing that. <laughs> I did that for for a while and I got so excited that I decided I want to sign up for assisting a course and assisting led to teacher training mm -hmm. and that kind of turned into like just changing the course of my life completely wow. because I never imagined that I would become a yoga teacher mm -hmm. that wasn't the plan Mm -hmm. So I actually thought when I was little, my dream was always to be a concert violinist. So I, should I get into this whole story now? Sure. Yeah, please do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when I was little, my dad, is, my dad was a flutist in the Israeli opera for many, many, many years. And that was his life. And he was a musician. And we had this really strong bond um, through music. Mm-hmm. And my husband's also a musician and we met in high school. So my whole life revolved around music mm -hmm. and I was going to be a violinist, but I just could not perform. So that's a problem. When it's you want... a challenge right? <laughs> a when you're trying to be professional. Yes. Being able to perform is part of the gig. Yeah. The anxiety was um, just all consuming and it's the kind of um, stage fright where everything is shaking so much that you mm. can't put your finger in the right place. And that turns into this horrible feedback loop where you try to perform a concert, everything is shaking, mm -hmm. you don't do well because you just can't move. Yeah. <laughs> and then there is more dread of the next time and the mm -hmm. next time it just turns into a horrible loop of, of fear. And um, I really loved music and I really loved uh, playing the violin, but I did not like to feel so petrified and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it uh, affects uh, your self-esteem, of course, because you can never um, live up to how you want it to sound. Yeah. Yeah. And I was also in a very competitive environment of uh, music making because mm -hmm. I was in a arts school. Mm -hmm. um, so all of my classmates were very... Uh, talented musicians mm -hmm. and it was it was it was hard so yeah. I eventually decided that I can't do it anymore and when uh, I come from Israel so in Israel everybody goes to the army at AJ and it, when we, it was my time I didn't audition for any of the bands or the orchestras I put away the violin and I decided I'm going to do something else mm -hmm. and only years later I figured that it was because of the fear <laughs> of failure <laughs> and the fear of stage fright, but, um, the fear of fear. Yeah. But I put the violin away and I think it was only when I started to do yoga that I discovered that my fear is not who I am. Mm. And so that was a huge gift. Mm -hmm. And I also discovered that you get better at something you practice. Yeah. So, and it's so vivid when you're doing a p physical practice. Mm-hmm especially when you start from doing nothing mm -hmm. and you start having a practice, mm -hmm. you get so strong and flexible. Mm -hmm. um, so I understood then that if I want to get better at talking in front of people or being in front of people, I just have to do it a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And I think it was never explained to me this way, or right. I never wanted to look at it this way. 
I thought that my fear was who I was. And Anak, can you share a little bit more about what you said in terms of the fear of fear? Because I feel like that's something that as human beings, so many of us contend with in different domains of life that keeps us stuck, that prevents us from taking risks. And how did you work with that fear in your yoga practice or how did you notice it show up in your yoga practice that gave you an opportunity to practice facing that fear um yeah that's a good question i agree i think we get so hung up on not feeling scared because it's not a good feeling yeah um but uh, if i think a lot of people if you've taken a yoga class you hear about having to sit with discomfort Mm-hmm. And sitting with discomfort is what this is about. Mm-hmm. Um, so being afraid is very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But I think it's kind of it kind of sounds like a trope, but we grow from it. Mm-hmm. So when we do things that are uncomfortable, we're pushing the envelope. We're pushing mm-hmm. that line of, you know, that little line that we drew around ourselves of, you know, who I am and what I can do. Mm -hmm. And when you expand that line, all of a sudden you break through and you discover that you actually can do things that maybe you thought you weren't able to do before. Mm -hmm. So fear is a perfectly reasonable mechanism to protect ourselves. But sometimes um, protecting ourselves also is boxing ourselves in. Mm -hmm. So... You know, from the first teacher training I took was was a Baptiste training, and they're huge. There's like 150 people crammed in a room. A lot of people. You can't even (laughs) fathom that. (laughs) Right. It's different from how things are operating these days. But it's it's a boot camp, right? And Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things that every person is required to do is they stand up and they talk in front of these 150 people. And uh, there is a certain um, script that you have to say and you you put in your own spin on it, but mm-hmm. you have to remember it. And then you have to go in front of those people and say it. And for me, up to this point, I would rather shoot myself in the foot than stand in front of 100 people. Yes. And because what if I forget the lines? Mm-hmm. There is nothing more scary. Mm-hmm. And I remember... It was about to be my turn. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, you know, wow, I'm really scared right now. Mm-hmm. I feel so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. My limbs are shaking mm-hmm. and I'm sweaty mm-hmm. and I feel my heart pounding in my throat. Mm-hmm. And that made a huge difference because up until that point, the technique was don't think about it push it down, mm-hmm. ignore it. It's not happening. Mm-hmm. Disassociate from your body, right. get through it, just get through it. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. remember that was the first time I took the time and I said to my, I acknowledged how mm-hmm. my body was feeling. Mm-hmm. And what happened after I said my, my thing, it's very short. I felt so strong. Mm. <laughs> and I felt like I was born to do this. I love speaking in front of people. Yeah. I, I love being in community. I love sharing mm-hmm. from what I know and mm-hmm. what I believe. So I, I just, 
Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. I'm Go good. ahead. I was just going to say, I think that's such a powerful example of how fear can convince us of who we are. We can start to identify with fear such that we think that the things we're not doing are potentially things we shouldn't be doing or things we aren't meant to be doing. Like the fear can right. use us and get and convince us that we don't like a certain thing or we're not meant to do a certain thing when it's actually the fear that's dictating that rather than the truth of who we are and how sometimes acknowledging the fear and naming it and, and honoring it is a way towards that clarity to really differentiate what are the things in my life that I really am meant for or am drawn, drawn to when I can be present with that fear. And, and so I just, I love that, that example, because I think it really highlights how there is so much power in naming it and sitting with it in terms of helping ourselves clarify our path and not feeling dictated or controlled by fear, having a different kind of relationship to the fear. I totally agree. Yeah. And the sad thing is that it's an ongoing it's not it's not like you face your fears right. one time yes. yes and you vanquish them and then mm -hmm. for the rest of your life it's done it's it's a practice because mm -hmm. things keep coming up yes and something that you come up against will keep showing up will keep mm -hmm. showing up will keep showing up in different forms mm -hmm. and uh facing it is always challenging but it's always so interesting and i always feel like i'm getting stronger and I'm also getting to be more myself because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you're when you're boxed in with your with your fear or hesitation you always feel like people don't know who you are inside mm -hmm. yes they don't get to, to experience you mm -hmm. or you feel misunderstood or not seen right right well and they can't see you your your true self if it's hidden by the fear too right like if yeah. we're so controlled by the fear that we're not engaging in life in a way that truly reflects who we are it's hard to then feel understood and acknowledged for who we are because we're not that's not what we're putting forward to the rest of the world it's true and it, it's it, i see that reflected in the way people um talk to me or um mm -hmm. talk about me even nowadays you know, I say something and a friend of mine will say, but you're so strong. It's not a problem for you. Mm. And I, I pause and I take it in and I'm like, really? <laughs> That's what you think of me? It's, it's wonderful. Because I, <laughs> I, 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 I never saw myself this way mm -hmm. when I was younger. Yeah. And now I totally do. Mm -hmm. you know? I think it also has to do with being, you know, over 40. Well, yeah, <laughs> as we age, there is yeah. wisdom that comes. Well, Anena, I, I love also what you said about the physicality of yoga, because as you said, fear and anxiety are such visceral experiences. And that's yes. part of what is so daunting about anxiety is that it really can overtake your body in a way that's really unpleasant. And in the asana, the physical practice of yoga, we have a very concrete way to work through fear because I think so often we might intellectually recognize, okay, I don't want to be dominated by this fear. I don't want fear to drive my life, yet we're not really sure what to do about that. 
or, or how to interact with life in a different kind of way. And so to have a concrete way to sit with fear, to acknowledge it, to work through it, to be with it, I, I just love that because sometimes things feel kind of abstract and it can be unclear what the path is for working through fear. And so I, I loved how you, I love how you frame the physical practice of yoga as a concrete, tangible way to work through some of this. Yeah. And it's getting in the habit of inhabiting your body. Mm-hmm. So being embodied mm-hmm. and it's funny, I was learning how to crochet the other week. So now that's the only metaphor I can think of. It's like mm-hmm. stitching your mind into your body, mm-hmm. right? Bit by bit. Here's mm-hmm. my hand. This is where I place it. This is how it feels on the ground. Mm-hmm. So you have um, this way of, um, it's almost like you're you're um, putting on this, this, bo- this body, right? Once again and and living living in it living mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. Um, the emotions is such a especially for somebody who's not used to it or mm-hmm. has not been doing it mm-hmm. i think people that have anxiety that's what we do mm-hmm. we, we dissociate we put the body because because like you said the feelings are the what we the tangible feelings in the body are so overwhelming mm-hmm. and so you feel if you look at them you will get sucked in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so learning how to sit with anxiety or sit with um the things that are m- coming up in the body mm-hmm. is is really powerful mm-hmm. and i think it's also a little bit it, uh, it, it I'm, I'm stuttering but it's interesting to think about the teachings of yoga because the teachings of yoga are, are telling us that we are not our body Mm-hmm. Right. So there is a very clear definition of what's on the nature side of things. Mm-hmm. And that is body. And that is also mind. Mm-hmm. According to Patanjali, if that's what you're working with. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there is the, the other what's on the other side that is hard to name, but we call it the self with a capital S mm-hmm. or the soul. So mm-hmm. that is completely separate. But it's only when you start to be in your body that you start to embody yourself that you have a glimpse of that mm-hmm. other. Or at yeah. least for me, that was my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's to access that that self with a capital S, we need to start with that embodiment and being in our minds and bodies and it's having that, that consciousness and awareness. Yeah. I think yoga philosophy is so wonderful. There's so much <laughs> wisdom there. Yeah. And it's so very much. different than uh, uh, the Western way of thinking it. Mm-hmm. I think in, in I, I'm not sure I'm not a, you know, a philosophy major, but <laughs> in Western religion, um, the mind is who you are, but mm. in Eastern philosophies, um, it is just another part of the ever-changing, moving, mm-hmm. prakriti, right? The mm-hmm. natural world. Yes. And if you wait long enough, your mind will change. Mm-hmm. And you will change, which is so wonderful, like, to think that there is this fluidity that you can shape mm-hmm. yourself. You can um, carve better pathways. 
Yes. It's liberating, right? Because there's, you've heard me talk about this before, there's plasticity, there's a dynamic. It's not a rigid destiny that's set in stone. And, And so when we really embrace that, it's really empowering to recognize if you stick with something, if you practice new ways of thinking and ways of being in your body, there's, there is something on the other side. There's a deeper wisdom, a deeper consciousness. And I think that's a really beautiful. And I think, I think that's also supported by science because neuroplasticity is Mm -hmm. a thing. It's a thing. (laughs) So when you repeat something over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. you can, you can carve out a new pathway in your brain. Exactly. That jives with this whole idea in yoga of Mm -hmm. um, samskaras, right? uh, Can you share a little bit more for people who aren't familiar with samskara? Um, (laughs) So basically a samskara is a thought pattern, Mm -hmm. I think. So it's it's just like water. When the water flows in the same direction for centuries, then the ravine is deep. Then if you want to divert the water, you need to make a new um, pathway. You need to start digging that new um, uh, path. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think the, the, more you, the more you think something, the more it turns into what you do, right? That, that, mm-hmm. that familiar, you know, the, mm-hmm. the more um, your thoughts shapes your actions and so forth. So... Um, when we practice having different thoughts, we can shape our experiences. Mm-hmm. I, I firmly believe that. And I, I firmly believe that I'm not um, always the same, that mm-hmm. I'm capable of change. Mm-hmm. And if I identify the samskaras or the pathways that are not helping, mm-hmm. that are detrimental, and that get in the way of the good samskaras mm-hmm. that I have, mm-hmm. Then once I identify them, then I can shift my focus and I can work on this new path and start mm-hmm. to carve it. And it, it really is sometimes daunting because it's like drop by drop. Mm-hmm. It doesn't flow. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel right. It's just like doing an asana in your body. Mm-hmm. It's like the first time you do Parvrita Trikonasana, right? The, the twisting triangle. And it's like the most awkward thing ever. <laughs> But after you do it 500 times, then you become, you know, masterful at it. Mm-hmm. Even. Yeah. So, you know, the well, body changes and the mind changes and it's all on the same side of the, of the plot line. Mm-hmm. And as we practice these new pathways or new patterns, the old ones start to wither away because we're not sustaining them. So yes. it's almost like this dual dual process. And as you know, because I know you speak to this in your classes, those samskaras, those thought patterns show up in our physical practice when we are embodied, when we are moving through space in our bodies, those same samskaras that affect us off the mat are showing up on the mat. So whether that's a comparing mind, whether that's self-criticism, whether that's not believing in ourselves or trusting the process, there's so much rich opportunity to notice those patterns and to practice new ways of responding to those patterns. Do we give into them? Do we push them away with a ferocity that also doesn't serve us? So to, again, have that concrete 
practice on the mat, I think is really, can be very powerful if we, if we take the opportunity. I agree. And that's why I love it so much. A lot of my teachers said, or say, your practice is like a mirror. It reflects mm. to you, your habits. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of habits in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And when I look at the habits that I have in my body, you know, for example, okay, I always overuse my lower back, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm back bending. <laughs> so <laughs> in the beginning, I don't want to look at it. I'm like, I'm just going to do it the same way because it's been working so far. <laughs> And then, you know, I start to think about it. I start to play with it. And, and, and when I think about it, maybe I have less pain there. I have less vulnerability there. I start to, I, I start to go in a better direction. Mm-hmm. And so I can use that information for my life too. Mm-hmm. Right? So when something comes up that I've done a hundred times the same way, but I know maybe it's not ideal. Mm-hmm. So it's much more convenient just to push it away. Why would I want to work on it? Right. It's a lot of work to undo patterns, to unstitch, as mm-hmm. they were. Yeah. And it's, there's no guarantee that what's on the other side is better, mm-hmm. necessarily, mm-hmm. because we don't have a guidebook that tells us, okay, if you do this, this is the result. Right. Um, so, you know, it's easier to just uh, push it aside until you can't ignore it anymore. Mm-hmm. But in, in the body, it's the clearest because mm-hmm. if you push it aside without looking at it, your body will eventually tell you. Yes, loud something and clear. will break. Something will, you know, there'll be pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is. It's like working on your asana is like your laboratory. You know, I'm not the one who said it. Many people say it, mm-hmm. and it's true, and I agree with it. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to experiment and it's nice to be curious mm-hmm. and not be so um, confined, mm-hmm. you know, and it's nice to be a kid. It's also uncomfortable because mm-hmm. we're used to doing things well. And, and when we find something we're not so good at, it's mm-hmm. kind of a bummer. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Most of us don't like to not feel good at things. No. <laughs> so. That's why I don't ski. <laughs> Talk about facing my fear. You will never, ever. <laughs> I just, mm-hmm. and I, 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 yeah, that's one thing I need to try. I should stand behind my words. But, mm-hmm. you know, things that scare us, things that are uncomfortable, mm-hmm. it's hard to approach them. It's very hard. Well, and as you were talking, there were two, well, there were a lot of thoughts that came to mind, but I'll share, share two of them. One mm-hmm. is related to there not being a guarantee of something positive at the other side, because I do think that for so many of us, once we do work with fear in a way that gets us closer to that kind of alignment with our true selves, we have to reckon with making different decisions or maybe pruning certain relationships out of our lives or people not necessarily approving of how we're living our lives. Like there's an, I don't mean to sound like a downer, but I do think there is a reality that not everyone supports our transformation or our new ways of being or doing. And that sometimes there are certain losses that go along with relating to ourselves and our lives in a different kind of way. Of course, the hope is that with that alignment, there is often more 
sense of empowerment and resiliency and fulfillment and those kinds of qualities as well. But that doesn't mean that it's all positive or all pleasant, that there, there can be loss there too. And relate, I guess on the flip side, you were also talking a bit about how good it felt those times that you worked with fear and stayed with it. And I do think that sometimes fear causes so much self-doubt in our capacity to withstand difficult things that that can start to become a part of our narrative about ourselves, that we can't do it, we're not worthy, we're not good enough, we're not strong enough. And so part of one of the positives that can come out of facing fear and working with fear is that stronger trust in ourselves and deepening and reinforcing that more positive belief that we are capable, that we are strong, even when things get get difficult. So it's sort of this duality of so much empowerment and sense of self-worth and self-trust and self-confidence can come from working with fear. And, and there also can be loss and there also can be change. And, and so I think that's a part of the practice too, is being able to tolerate the unknown about all of I it. I totally agree. Yeah. And there's no way of knowing that you're yeah. making the right choice. Mm-hmm. And there's always, there, there should always be doubt mm-hmm. because you shouldn't always know everything. Yes. If that's what you think, then you definitely know nothing, right? <laughs> so the, the doubt is, is, is there. Mm-hmm. And then we make a choice and we have to live with that choice. But it's the, mm-hmm. I think it's better than not making a choice at all and avoiding it altogether. Mm-hmm. So there is a risk, but um, maybe maybe you learn something from it, even if it doesn't give you the result that you were looking for. Yes. And yeah, you know, people don't always like the way we're changing. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's not on us. Right. I am, I am a huge uh, people pleaser. I like to make everybody around me happy. Mm. And uh, one time I posted a picture on Facebook when I wasn't smiling and I got so many concerned messages. Oh, <laughs> what is wrong? <laughs> because when people perceive you in a certain way mm-hmm. and then you don't behave in the same way. Yes. Sometimes that makes them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But that's okay. Right. That's okay. Yeah. It's not our job to make everyone else uncomfortable. No, and it's a good sign too, to, Mm -hmm. to, um, let your relationships evolve. Mm -hmm. Like I always, I always say that it's so hard to go home to Israel to visit my family because they still see me as I was when I was nine Mm -hmm. and they treat me that way. Right. Sometimes I don't like it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So you know, it, well, I it's said, like you said, it's a, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, like you said, it's a practice, right? Because some people in our lives will pull us towards that old way of being or that there is that pull to inhabit that older version of ourselves. And so that is a practice too, mm-hmm. resisting that compulsion and, and trying to continue to inhabit the, the newer 
way of being, even when people are still seeing us in a different kind of light. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. I appreciate you highlighting the impact of people pleasing and having that awareness about yourself, because I do think yoga is another way in which we can practice railing against some of these messages that we've internalized from society, whether it's due to gender, whether it's due to our families of origin or or something else entirely, but even people messaging you when you're not smiling, like this sort of assumption that, that we need to be happy. And so often, I, I really often find myself feeling irritated when people tell me to smile because it's, yes, (laughs) bypassing my experience, right? So, and it's not something that helps me feel seen or or heard. But at any rate, I, I do think that some of that untying that you were talking about earlier isn't just our own personal self narrative, but it's also this untying, this undoing, unraveling of messages we've internalized and have absorbed from the world around us. And that can show up in a yoga class, right? Like if I yes. want the teacher to like me the best and I'm suffering through poses because I have a sense of what the best looks like, or I'm acting like I'm enjoying something that I'm not. And so there's just a lot, I think, that can come up in a, in a yoga practice, in any physical practice, related to some of those societal messages as well. Anat, can you share a little bit about how yoga asana, the physical practice of yoga, is part of this larger system of yoga. You've already talked a little bit about some of the teachings of yoga. And I, the reason I want to highlight this is that I think a lot of people, again, not through any fault of their own, but just because of cultural messaging around yoga, equate the practice of yoga with the asana, just the physical practice of yoga, when in fact yoga is part of this eight-limbed path. And there are these different branches of, of yoga that can facilitate living a life of alignment with our values and helping us be the truest versions of ourselves. So if you can just share a little bit about either that eight-limbed path in general or how these different branches of yoga have benefited you in your own life, I would love to hear you. It's such a it's such a huge topic. I know, I know. <laughs> I I have a tendency to ask big questions or about a hundred questions rolled into one. <laughs> Masquerade. No, this is this so is great. Any but, part of that that you want to speak to? I, well, I, will I think yoga in the West is physical yoga mostly. That's what people know. That's what I knew when I mm-hmm. started, mm-hmm. and that's what I still enjoy uh, yes. all the time. But um, yoga is a philosophical tradition Mm -hmm. born in India, Mm -hmm. right? So, and the one that we quote quote the most, the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, very ancient text, I think 2000 years old. And um, he he was, or he was um, uh, writing down the teachings that were already happening Mm -hmm. and it's a philosophical system it is not a physical practice system Mm -hmm. 
and within it, right, in the second pada, he delineates the Ashtanga Yoga, the eight-limbed, Ashta is eight, Anga, limb, path, to the goal of yoga, right? So the practice is not the goal of yoga. The goal of yoga, as Patanjali describes it, is stilling the fluctuations of the mind, right? He says it in the very first, the second sutra, actually. So... And then he gives you all of these very practical ways to work and to practice towards achieving that. Mm-hmm. And the Ashtanga uh, path is one of them. Mm-hmm. It's not the only one, but it's one of them. And, and so if you look at these eight limbs, asana or physical practice is the third one. And I love the first two, <laughs> yamas and niyamas, right? So basically saying, you got to be a good person first mm-hmm. or you even get on your mat. Right. Um, because usually when he gives us lists, he puts the most important thing in the, in the front and center in the beginning. So yamas are, um, are attitudes towards other people. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get the famous ahimsa, right? Nonviolence and, and so forth. Satya, Asteya, you know, Brahmacharya, Aparigraha. So all these things that, um, uh, you are first asked to interact with the world as a better person. Mm-hmm. And I am a failure even at the first one because I still eat meat. So <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't want to lie on air, but I really take them seriously. Yes. And the, this is something that y- you could really look into when you're doing your practice. Mm-hmm. So all of these things can be, can be combined, mm-hmm. right? You still have to be truthful when you're practicing your physical asana. Mm-hmm. You still have to not steal from one body part to get somewhere in your practice. You still mm-hmm. have to not hoard, you know, not go for all the poses. Mm-hmm. Um, you still have to practice some uh, continence or energy, uh, uh, kind of a preserve your energy in a good way. So uh, they can be a part of your physical practice mm-hmm. and nonviolence to the self too and nonviolence to the self so many things right we could go like mm-hmm. this could be you know three hours of discussion maybe even. and then you have the niyamas mm-hmm. which are the observances which are things that you um take care of in your own self mm-hmm. right and it starts with cleanliness Sausha or socha i think that's the right way of saying mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. You were worried about saying my name right. There's all these Sanskrit words that are terrifying to pronounce wrong. You want to be respectful. Of course. Of course. Well, hopefully if, if either of us mispronounces anything on this podcast, people will forgive us and know that we are coming to this conversation with the best of intentions. I hope so. And are so. still working on our pronunciation of things. Yeah. We're eternal students, right? So anyway, please continue. Sorry. <laughs> so I was talking about uh, socha, which is cleanliness, and Patanjali asks, actually asks us to be clean, uh, not only in the way we take care of our body, but also clean in our thoughts, mm-hmm. which is so interesting. So interesting. Right? And then, um, well, there are five. I'm not going to get into all of this, but it's, okay. it's the mm-hmm. things that you need to do this tapas, which is, you know, some uh, uh, basically practice. Mm-hmm right? Austerities. And you've got Svadhyaya, which is self-study. So you study the scriptures and 
all that uh, all of the uh, texts and you study yourself mm-hmm. right and you have contentment which is a beautiful practice mm-hmm. in itself santosha right and which one oh the most important stuff surrender, surrender. <laughs> Isvara pranidhana so it's surrender to god but we can look at it in different ways because um not all of us um are comfortable with that word mm-hmm. <laughs> i can just share a, a brief personal example of of surrender in asana practice so for mm-hmm. me there have been times where i have not wanted to practice yoga because i'm experiencing something really intense in my life whether it's some kind of grief related to a personal loss or something that's just really challenging. And I know that those are the times that I need the practice the most. And so it's one thing that I work on in my life is not being so overly driven, right? Not giving like 150% that, that there can be softness. And so the times where I have gone to practice asana when I'm in the bit, the midst of emotional turmoil, I notice that oftentimes there is a need to let emotion flow. And so an example I can think of is, is being in a posture and, and crying and being sad mm-hmm. and taking more of a child's pose, which I think of as more of a, a surrender kind of posture and, and letting that flow as opposed to feeling like I have to push through this feeling. I have to go to my edge of this posture that the teacher is, is right, sharing. Right. And um, so anyways, so for me, that's often what surrender can look like in the context of a physical practice is letting whatever emotion be actually be and creating a shape with my body that allows me to let that emotion be without pushing it away, without pushing through it, which can right. be one I- of my tendencies. I can relate like so much to this. (laughs) And I, again, I relate it to control because Mm -hmm. it's really hard to not want to not go for the results. Mm -hmm. So surrender is about um, being detached from the results. Yeah. I think, and not having that control. And it's very, very Mm -hmm. difficult. And so much trust too. Mm -hmm. And and working against some of the thought patterns or I love the word vritti, the vrittis of the mind, the whirlpools of the mind, because to me, it's like we can get sucked in down that spiral. And so for me, oftentimes what comes up around that intense emotion, especially in a, a class where it's public and people can see is worrying about what people will think of me or feeling like, what if I start crying and then I just sob the whole class? And, you know, it's like, well, what if, right? <laughs> like, well, if that's that what needs wonderful? to happen. Yes, yes. <laughs> because sometimes exactly. that's what we need. Right, right. So it's like that trust that you are, like you said, you're listening to that inner wisdom and that it's, it's going to be okay. It's so, so for don't me, it's think, also that self-trust. Don't you think that it's also very helpful to have the trust in your teacher? Yes. I, think I mean, if you're so talking cute. about being in a studio, right? I've been in a class where I felt like I couldn't let myself go. Yes, yes. And then I've been in a class where I felt completely supported and safe. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I have a nice story about that. Um, 
uh, about Patricia Walden, who's mm. a very famous Iyengar younger teacher. And I, I've studied with her and I love her so much. And one time I came into her workshop and I had a neck injury. And so I was trying uh, to do everything. And, but then we got to uh, headstand and of course I couldn't. So she put me on this horse and I was upside down, but I was hanging in the air and it was wonderful. And then she came over and she put her hand on my back and she said, are you okay? And I said, yes. And she said, do you feel safe? Mm. And tears came oh. because nobody's ever asked me that before in a class. Yeah. And there's something about her touch and the compassion in her voice and the fact that she cares about whether I feel safe mm -hmm. that really touched me and um, inspired me as a teacher. So I think more than asana, you know, I learned from my teachers how to be a teacher. And that was a moment like that. I know. love that story. That's such a beautiful story. Yeah. And it's making me think too, a not about, again, this parallel to our lives outside of the yoga studio where so often to let emotions be, whatever they may be, grief, fear, that there can be a power in having the support of others. And so in the same ways that we need to have the right match with our teachers to feel like that kind of surrender and self-trust and release is possible. We need that in other relationships in our lives and, and reflecting on what that means to each of us. Because I think sometimes it can be, doesn't always need to be articulated in words. Sometimes it's just a felt sense, but, but that, that is just so, that relationship is just so foundational on the one hand, there has to be trust. On the other hand, there has to be some critical thinking. Yes. Mm -hmm. Even before you get to that part. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think it's really important to remember that teachers are just people like everybody else. They don't sit at home meditating all day. They have responsibilities <laughs> and they pay their bills and they, you know, drive around and curse when somebody cuts them off. And... Uh... <laughs> where I was thinking about them in like real life situations and I couldn't imagine it because I thought they were above it right. and to kind of make myself do that because I think it's mm. not useful not useful for me to think of a teacher as somebody that is above um, all of these little things mm -hmm. and um, to remember their humanity and then to trust them Mm -hmm. I feel inclined, right. but also to be critical and to hold them up to a standard because mm -hmm. especially if you consider them your teacher. Yes. And, um, you know, having been disillusioned I, I, a few times, I think we all have by people yes. that we held up on a pedestal. Yes. What I learned is not to be so, um, pedestal-y. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> I like that word. <laughs> You know, people can disappoint me and still be great people. Yes. And I can still trust them or people can disappoint me and I can decide that this type of violation um, amounts to, okay, I'm going to go a different way now. Right. You have to have your bullshit meter up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's but some real discernment there. Hmm? 
there's some real discernment there. Yeah, like you said. Have, exactly. And that's a big key. It's a key, uh, um, how do you say, tenet mm -hmm. of yoga, mm -hmm. right? Is you, you're becoming more discerning. Mm -hmm. So Ainat, I know that I shared a personal example of surrender, which got us a little bit off track with the eight-limbed path. And so I, I know this was a big question that I asked of you. And so we're not going to be able to get into all of it today, but would you mind just laying, giving a lay of the land, so to speak, in terms of the eight limbs, just for people who want to explore them further after this conversation today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we talked about the yamas and niyamas, the attitudes and observances. And then we talked about asana. Mm -hmm. And what comes after that is pranayama, which is the uh, manipulation of breath. Mm -hmm. And then pratyahara, which is the uh, withdrawal of the senses. Mm -hmm. So up until that point, all of the angas are kind of external mm -hmm. or in the body. And what goes on after that, right? The last three are internal. So um, uh, dharana, which is um, focus, mm -hmm. dhyana, which is meditation, and then samadhi, which, which has many stages, but it is the, um, um, an alternate state of consciousness, if you will, mm -hmm. or where we abide in our true nature. Um, I could, there's, there's a, a lot, lot to say. <laughs> yes. With, with the, with the, you know, uh, final goal of reaching Kaivalya, which is the liberation of the, the, the true self, right? The self with the capital S mm -hmm. where you realize your own true self. And, and that is beyond words. Yes. So there's a lot there. There's a lot there. <laughs> Um, and I think starting with the first three or four, right, doing your asana practice and your pranayama and contemplating what it means to observe these um, different rules and regulations that Patanjali provides us mm -hmm. is nice, nice breeding ground Yes. to, to then go a little deeper and, and, um, and get a glimpse of, of what's out there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But it's yeah. a really nice roadmap. Mm -hmm. And what it does, um, according to Patanjali, is that it weakens the kleshas, which, which are the uh, roots of our samskaras that are not helpful. Yes. So re weakening the obstacles. Mm -hmm. That's a really nice thing to work with. Mm -hmm. I love that image too, we weakening the roots. Because these patterns can feel like they have very deep roots. Yes. Yes. According to yogic traditions, some are even rooted in past lives. Yes. There's that <laughs> intergenerational <laughs> transmission. Yes. yes. But, mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can believe it or not believe it, but that is what Patanjali is saying. Right. So there's, there, I, I love that encouragement to explore a part or several parts of the path because each one limb on its own is, is so much. As we've said, we can't even talk about them all and give them full justice in, in this brief time together. So I think that is a very accessible way to explore. And I think that's what, that's what I really like about um, when I was studying Iyengar is that um, the philosophy is very much infused into the doing of the poses. Mm -hmm. That's what I experienced in some mm -hmm. of the classes that you can meditate while doing a trikonasana. Right. Which was, you know, his way of, of doing it. Right. It's not everybody's way, but I, right. I enjoyed it a lot. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. well, I think it also fosters our ability to find our own way to practice these limbs, right? That there's not one size fits all. There's not one way to live out these practices. Yeah. Well, I mean, we call, we can't all go into a cave and, and, and <laughs> the loincloths and, 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 and right. sit there and yes. <laughs> for eight hours. At the top exactly. Of the exactly. We can only do our best. Right. <laughs> I really like, you know, if we're talking about the, the text, I really like the Gita mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's a little bit more for people who run a household and have, um, an earthly life. Yes. Yes. That's a whole different. Yes. Well, I'll, I can include that as a recommendation too in the episode notes for people who are interested. Yeah. So, well, I, I feel like we could talk for hours more, maybe days and weeks more. And I have, I have so many things I want to ask you and, and talk about balance. And I know that we also have a time limit. So I want to ask you, is there, because there is so much power to this practice and because it is a practice that people may feel intimidated by, whether it's because of things they've been taught to believe about yoga or what it means to be yogic and feeling like they're failing at being yogic or self-consciousness about their bodies or flexibility. I think there can just be a lot that can get in the way of people accessing this practice. And I know for both of us, yoga has just been such a profound practice in our lives that's been hugely transformative. And so I feel very sad when I hear people not exploring yoga. Of course, yoga is not the path for everyone either, but I guess what I, I want to, would love to hear from you is what would you say to someone who sees that there could be a, a place for yoga practice in their lives, whether it's asana or more of the broader eight limbed path and philosophy of yoga, what, what advice or wisdom might you share with someone? Well, you know, I see it as my, uh, mission to tell everybody how wonderful yoga is and Mm -hmm. uh, how it transformed my life and everything about my life is different and better for it Mm -hmm. um so sometimes i look at i i I am looking at myself as being like the walking advertisement is Mm -hmm. like this is so great why won't you try it and um not that my life is so great but that i feel that it really helped a lot of the difficult things that i was um, grappling through and it helped me help me through many difficult periods in my life mm-hmm. um, but I think now is the perfect time to try yoga because you could go on zoom and just turn off your video yes you don't even go to a studio you can be in your own home mm-hmm. and that feeling of you know first walking into a studio and feeling vulnerable and not knowing where to put your mat all of this yes. flew out the window like this mm-hmm. is the perfect time to start Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when you're starting something, anything, you should just think, okay, I'm not going to be good at yoga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to try something new mm-hmm. and maybe defer my judgment until I've tried it a few times. And also know that there's so many different methodologies and there's so many different styles and there's so many different teachers that you can try just a sampler and see what you are drawn to. Maybe you want to do some restorative yoga and start this way. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you want to start with Iyengar. 
right? Or maybe you want to get thrown into a power yoga class and learn how to swim on the fly, you know, like whatever fills your cup at that moment. And, and, and that's a good get. So that would be your gateway, mm-hmm. whatever you choose uh, that is um, maybe more appealing. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, uh, it was about the teachers more mm-hmm. than the methodology. Or, or mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. I don't really care about what methodology it is. I can learn from anything. It's the teacher that really draws me in. Mm-hmm. I think that that resonance is so important and powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Anat, I am so honored that you are willing to have this conversation with me. You are someone who I deeply love and admire, and you really are someone who lives yoga practice off the mat. And as we said, yoga teachers are imperfect human beings like the rest of us. And I think for me personally, I have found it rare to find teachers who truly align thought, word, and deed. And and you are one of these remarkable people who does and is open to learning and transformation. And so it really is an honor. So thank you for being willing to talk today. Thank you so much. I feel feel the same about you. you (laughs) Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.